Good morning, everybody. How you doing? Anybody enjoying this cooler weather? I think it's, I think it's pretty great. Uh, anyway, good morning to you all and to everybody who's watching online. If you're visiting with us this morning, we are in the Gospel of John. And each week we're going verse by verse, looking deeply at who Jesus is. And last week, Jim did a great job talking to us about God's heart, how God is deeply relational and how the Bible over and over describes him as a lover who is constantly pursuing us. And that was really encouraging, wasn't it? Like, did that feel good to hear that? Okay, bottle that up because today I'm going to be talking about Jesus' anger. As he, as he whips up a, a storm in the temple, how do I keep getting assigned verses like these to preach? I don't know, but, but I'm, I'm on it. So today what we're going to be doing is we're going to be seeing a side of Jesus that we seldom see, but it's still very much a part of Jesus. So if you've got your Bibles, you can go ahead and open those up to John chapter 2, and we're going to begin by reading verses 13 through 16 together. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. Okay, we'll pause right there. We're going to continue in these verses that come next. But, but this is pretty dramatic, isn't it? This is a side of Jesus that John is showing us right off the bat at the beginning of his gospel. And it's dramatic. And I wish that I had like a Bible project video or some cool chosen clip to show you around this. I don't. But what I do have is I found an AI-generated picture of Jesus flipping over the tables in the temple. Okay, and so, do you think the AI nailed it here? Uh, <laughs> something tells me that's not quite right. Okay, um, all right. Now, before I unpack what's going on here with Jesus, I need to clarify something that some of you Bible scholars in the room may already be thinking, because this story of Jesus clearing the temple actually shows up in all four of the Gospels. In the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it actually shows up at the, at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. And here what we see is John is putting it in at the beginning of his narrative. So let me speak to this for just a second. Remember when I started this series back in August, I said that, that John was not really interested in giving us a chronological account of Jesus' life and ministry. Uh, what he is far more concerned is with telling us who Jesus is and what Jesus meant. And so John doesn't feel the need to put all the stories of Jesus in the order that they happened. Uh, and, and so what the scholars that I, I read and I studied, they all believe that John puts this at the beginning of his gospel to emphasize Jesus' authority. Emphasize his authority. And, and so John is going to put it here, and then he's going to keep coming back to it over and over uh, in his gospel narrative. So now let's get into the text. To fully grasp what's going on here, we need some context for the story 
Uh, because if this temple cleansing is in the last days of Jesus' ministry, and that's, that's what I personally believe, then what Jesus has done is he's just arrived in Jerusalem at the end of a very long road trip. And he's timed it perfectly. He's timed his coming to Jerusalem to coincide with the Passover celebration. And so I need to tell you a little bit about Passover because I know that some of us here might be relatively new believers, but the Passover was a big, big deal to the Jews. If you remember anything from the Old Testament, you remember Exodus where God brings his people out of bondage in Egypt after these 10 terrible plagues. And the last plague was the worst. It was the, the death of the firstborn. But if you put the blood of a lamb over your doorpost, you were, the, the, the plague would pass over you. So that's, that's what they were celebrating. The Jews celebrated it year after year. Uh, and so uh, here's the thing. In Jerusalem, where the temple was, this was the epicenter of worship for this celebration. And, and so if you were a Jew and you lived within 15 miles of the city, you were required to come to the temple. But, but the Jews have been scattered all over the Roman Empire. And so they made it a goal. If you were a Jew, you made it your goal in life to make at least one pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And hopefully, you would try to come as many times as possible. And history tells us that the population of Jerusalem was probably around 50,000 at the time of Jesus. But when Passover came, they say that there's an estimated between 150,000 up to 2 million people... Two million pilgrims would descend upon the city to worship and to celebrate. So I just want you to imagine that, right? So it's pandemonium, guys. That's, that's what's going on here. And Jesus comes into this highly charged environment, and he heads straight to the temple. And, and what, is he, what does he find when he gets there? Well, chapter 2, verse 14 tells us, in the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheeps and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. Imagine you come to church, and out in the lobby, you've got sheep, and you've got goats, and you've got money sellers. Would you be a bit surprised seeing that in the lobby of your church? Now, not if you're New Heights, because we've got a metal gorilla and a giraffe out there, so it's like not a, not a, a big, big deal to us, but... But at the temple, the Jews knew this is the special place to offer sacrifices, offerings to God, especially at Passover. And what everybody was seeking to do at Passover was to offer to God the sacrifice of an unblemished animal. But if you were coming from like 100 miles away, you didn't bring little lammy with you actually to sacrifice, right? Um, what you did is you brought money. You brought, you brought money because you could lug your own animal to the temple uh, and hope you made it past the blemish inspectors. They were real. So there were blemish inspectors, and, and they had to inspect your animal, and, and there was a fee for them to do the inspection. So pass or fail, you still had to pay the fee on your animal getting inspected. So it was just way more convenient for you to bring money to the temple and buy unblemished, pre-approved animals when you got there. So you brought money, but here's the thing. Most of the people that were coming uh, to Jerusalem, those pilgrims, they, they had Roman money and not Jewish shekels. And so if you had money and it had a pagan emperor's face on it, 
that was considered unclean, so you had to exchange your money if you wanted to buy anything at the temple. Are you guys following me? So, so this is why there were all these money changers there along with the animal sellers. Now, all of that kind of sounds reasonable, right? So why is Jesus so angry? Well, I believe that it's a number of things, but I'm going to talk specifically about a couple. The first is the location of this market. To understand why this uh, location was so upsetting to Jesus, we need to remember that the temple was arranged so that there was an inner court. That's the place that only the priests could go. And then what you had is you had a series of courtyards around that that were basically places where various groupings of people could go to learn and to pray and to worship and seek God. And this incredibly loud, disruptive market was set up in the only place that the Gentiles could come to seek God. It's the only place that the God-fearing Gentiles could go. It was actually called the, the Court of the Gentiles, where this market was, the only place that, that the people from the nations could worship. And in the Old Testament and in Jesus' time, being able to come to the temple and being able to worship and offer sacrifices to God, if you were a Gentile, it was a big, big deal to you personally. And it was also a very, very big deal to God. Listen to what God says through the prophet Isaiah in chapter 56, verse 7. So speaking of the Gentiles, God says, These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. So the temple was considered to be God's house, the place where heaven met earth and earth met heaven, the place where you could come from all the nations to pray and God would hear you and you could connect with him. So I want you to imagine yourself there. Like you've come and you're a Gentile. And by the way, all of us are Gentiles here, unless your name is Epstein or something, right? Um, we're, we're, we're all Gentiles here. But imagine that you've come to Jerusalem, to the holy mountain, and, and, and to worship and connect with God and imagine you walk into the only place you could go to church and you are assaulted by the sounds and the smells of sheep and cattle and, and goats and people haggling over the prices of these animals and then there are just insanely long lines for people to, to get to the money changers, you know, imagine like Six Flags or Disney, like just long lines filling up the only place that you can go to seek God and to pray. Does that sound like a place that you want to have a quiet time? I mean, we get distracted if it's five degrees too warm in the gym and there's a baby crying, right? Are you with me? I mean, I'm, I'm probably with all of you who you love... To, to, you know, get up in the morning and sit in your comfy chair with a cup of something warm and look out your window at the trees and then have your quiet time, right? I mean, that, that really is, is me. But, but set up, this setup in the court of the Gentiles, it's really a slap in the face to them. It's an intentional slap in the face to them. It's not welcoming the foreigner and the alien like the Old Testament law commanded the Jews. It's not loving your neighbor as yourself. 
It's, it's kind of like, okay, if you don't like to pray here, well, too bad. Why don't you go find someplace else? Oh, wait, you can't go anywhere else. Well, too bad. See ya. It's kind of the attitude towards the Gentiles. And this is prejudice and it's injustice in the name of God. And you better believe that it's got Jesus' attention. So, so that's the first thing that I think has Jesus so fired up. Here's the second thing that got Jesus' attention is that this was big, big business. And the whole system was rigged. It was actually rigged. And the, everybody who was involved in this market was making a killing off of the pilgrims that were coming to worship God at Passover year after year. Let me deal, detail out for you some of the corruption uh, that was going on here. First off, history tells us that this market was originally out in the town of Jerusalem. But that, that the, what, the high priest Caiaphas, he actually relocated it to right in the temple courts. Why? Because this made him and his fellow priests incredibly personally wealthy. And then you had the money changers, and they charged an entire day's wage just, just to exchange your money. That's like about 100 bucks if you're making minimum wage, like a $100 fee just to change your money. And then you had the animal inspectors who were on the temple payroll, and they would never approve your animals that you brought. They would inevitably always find some blemish, be it ever so small, and then they would insist that you buy one of their unblemished animals at an incredibly hiked up rate. And so there's another detail here that, that John records and Matthew also records in this story. And Jesus particularly calls out the pigeon sellers. I don't know if you noticed that. And so what's the big deal about the pigeons? So in the Old Testament law, there was a provision for the very poor. And so if you were very poor and, and you couldn't afford like a, you know, expensive ox or a sheep or a goat, there was a provision that said you could offer to God a pigeon or two, and that way you wouldn't be excluded from making a sacrifice to God. So, so for the very poor, you could buy a dove in town on your way to the temple and hope it made it past the blemish inspectors. It wouldn't, but you could, you could try. You'd buy it in town for about a day's wage. You could buy a couple of pigeons. You know how much they sold them for in the temple? One pigeon, three weeks wages. They are making a killing off of the poor. Are you understanding why Jesus is so fired up? The money was just pouring into the temple treasury year after year. And how was it getting there? through injustice in the name of God, and Jesus is fired up, and rightfully so. Because yet again, here is another example of Israel's corrupt leadership. And Jesus, just like an Old Testament prophet, he comes into the temple, and he drives them out. And as he's driving them out, he actually quotes two Old Testament prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah. Mark eleven seventeen captures what he says uh, as he quotes Isaiah and Jeremiah, Jesus says, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. You're thieves. 
You're stealing from, from my people. And, and here he's quoting Isaiah and Jeremiah where God had used these two Old Testament prophets in their day to confront the ungodly leadership at the temple. And those prophets said, stop making God's house a shallow religious icon. And yet here we have in our text, hundreds of years later, Jesus is confronting them because they've done it again. They have literally done it again. And so the Jews, they thought that as long as the building is grand and, and the attendance is, is booming and cash is flowing, they thought, well, then God must be pleased with us. And when I think about that, my fear is that there are churches today who measure their success by what I call the ABCs of ministry, attendance, buildings, and cash. And they're like, if we've got the attendance, we've got the buildings, we've got the cash, then, then God must be happy with us. But my fear is that they have, they've missed the things that really matter to God, the D, the D of discipleship, a heart that is fully devoted to following God, following the way of Jesus. And so that's, that's really the background of our story today. Are, are you doing okay? Let me just check in. Is everybody okay? Because I love this history and context stuff, but I know that you came here to worship Jesus this morning. So let's talk about him for the rest of this message, okay? We need to look at what is actually going on with Jesus. Because there's a side of him that we're seeing, and my guess is that some of us here are pretty uncomfortable with what we're seeing from Jesus today. So what I wanna do for the rest of the message is I wanna give you three major observations about Jesus, and then I wanna give you two personal walkaways. Let's talk about the first big observation. I'm gonna call it the full nature of Jesus. And I know that all of us here, we're good with grace Jesus, aren't we? Like we love grace Jesus. But how are we with truth Jesus? Because remember, John told us in chapter 1, verse 14, that Jesus was full of grace and truth. He's full of both. And so how are we with the truth part of Jesus that we're seeing today? Because this is Jesus. This is him. We don't just get meek and mild Jesus that, that tells us to love everybody. We also have to reckon with the Jesus who says that God is gonna bring justice on human evil and corruption. And I actually, and you actually want that Jesus, you want both Jesuses, you want grace Jesus and truth Jesus to be the same Jesus because a loving Jesus who doesn't care about injustice is not loving at all. So the challenge for us here is to embrace all of who Jesus is all of who he is. And this is becoming increasingly hard in our culture that is allergic to what the Bible calls sin. Just that whole notion of sin, our culture is allergic to that kind of thinking. And so for many, their picture of Jesus is this like sweet, meek and mild, kind of wet noodle of a guy who just exists to let us off the divine and so that Jesus would never tell you that you're wrong. That Jesus would never hurt your feelings. 
He would never rebuke you. That Jesus, you know, he only exists to help you and to make you feel good. But that is not the Jesus I find in the Bible. It's not the Jesus that the Old Testament prophets prophesied about. It's not the Jesus that's coming back in the last days to put an end to corruption and to bring justice. But I love this Jesus. I love him. And as hard as it may be, you and I need to see Jesus as he actually is presented in the Gospels. And we need to present that full picture of Jesus to our world. Amen? He's the Lamb of God. We sang about him that way this morning. And we also sang he's the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He's both. The one who is perfectly full of grace and truth, mercy and justice. And so I know that some of you this morning may be struggling with the aggressiveness of Jesus you see in this story because of your own story. And so, so when you see this aggressiveness in Jesus, it makes you think of maybe that angry preacher that you had in your church growing up, or maybe angry parents or angry adults in your life. And so, you know, if this is part of your story and you grew up with that, you're attracted to the kind side of Jesus who moves towards the lame, he moves towards the blind. But when you see Jesus getting angry about sin, you go, whoa, I, I, I don't know what to do with this. So maybe you need to think about what we're seeing here in Jesus this way. Yes, Jesus is ticked. He's angry. But what is anger? Think about this. What is anger? Experts tell us it's a secondary emotional response to deeper emotions. And so what I would like to suggest to you is that what we are seeing here with Jesus is his passion. There is a passion and a fire that is burning in him, and you know what it is? It's his passion for people. It's his passion to stop injustice. It's his passion for people to escape religious superficiality. It's his passion for how God is represented. It's his passion for people to truly connect with their creator. And the Bible uses a word for this that we don't use very often uh, in our daily language, and it is the word zeal. And so that's my second observation about Jesus that I want to talk about. Let's talk about the zeal of Jesus. So whether they, they, they understood it as the dust was kind of settling that day or whether they talked about it years later and reflected on it, John writes this in chapter 2, verse 17. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. And Jesus is embodying this verse. And actually, John is quoting here the words of King David in Psalm 69, 9 where David says, zeal for your house has consumed me. And so when David wrote those words in Psalm 69, he was referring to himself, but he's also looking forward. He's looking forward to the one true king who would come, who would have, who would have zeal for God's house. He would have passion and zeal for the Father, zeal to see the vulnerable provided with justice. And so, so to help us to understand what I'm thinking about when it comes to Jesus' zeal and his passion and his anger, what I, what I want to do is talk briefly about the passion that I've seen in my own life in raising my kids. Because 
I thought I was a pretty patient person until I became a parent. <laughs> Are any of you with me? It's like, man, I was, I was just the model of patience. And man, these kids, they're just driving me crazy. So, you know, it's like, like I think we can relate to this a bit here. Um, but my kids, I just have to say this, they're not here, they'll be in second service, a couple of them, but, but my kids are amazing, they really are. I know I'm biased, but I think that they're my favorite people on the planet. I, I just am crazy about my kids, but, but especially when they were young, and they were doing things that they definitely knew better and should not do, I would get frustrated. And not just a little bit. I would get so frustrated and I would feel these feelings of anger just kind of welling up in me that I didn't want to act on. But, but why was I experiencing these emotions? Was it because I, I hated my kids? No, it's the absolute opposite. I love my kids passionately. I'm devoted to them and I want, and I wanted and I want still to see them grow completely into the people that God has created them to be. I love them deeply and I would venture to say for those of us who, who are parents here in the room this morning, that this is the true heart of your parenting. That, that most of you here, we discipline our kids because we deeply, down deep, we love them and we want the very best for them. But what do they see in their limited perspective? All they see is anger and, and frustration. And, and we do need to watch that anger with our kids. Don't, don't get me wrong. But that's a secondary emotion tied to something much deeper. Are you following me in this illustration? I think that this is actually what's going on with Jesus in our text today. Yes, he's angry. He's fired up. But here's the thing. There are times when the passionate love of Jesus is confrontational. He confronts because he loves. And his anger is not because he hates people. It's the opposite. It's that he loves people and sin hurts those he loves the most. Sin hurts those he loves, and that's all of us. And so Jesus has to confront here. But I believe that even as he's confronting, even with these money-hungry people that he's confronting and he's kicking out of the temple, I believe that each one of them and, and the whole world, he wants our broken, rebellious world, even the corrupt, money-hungry people, he wants us to be reconciled to God. And when I was reflecting on this study, I, I just couldn't help but think of Matthew, the tax collector. He was one of these money-hungry, corrupt guys. And he's the guy who wrote the first gospel, Matthew. So Jesus wants to reconcile us. Okay, we're seeing the passion and the zeal of Jesus. Let me get to my last observation, and it's a really fun one. We'll call it the sign of Jesus. Let's read about what happens right after the ruckus in the temple. Uh, go to Luke chapter, I'm sorry, John chapter 2, and we're going to read verses 18 through 22. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority? There's that word. That's why uh, scholars believe he put this in here. Your authority to do all this. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. Now, they're just thinking with their natural minds, or they think he's talking about the building. And they reply, it's taken us 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said, and then they believed the scripture. There's a, 
a, a verse in the Psalms that says, you won't let your Holy One see decay. Uh, so that's what they, they believe uh, he was talking about here. Uh, and, and they believe the words that Jesus had spoken. So basically, you get the, the temple authorities and the priests, they come up to Jesus after this whole ruckus, and they come up to him and they go, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? You must think that you're the Messiah because only somebody like him could have the authority to do what you just did here. And then they're like, if you're the Messiah, prove it. Like right now, show us a sign. Do some miracle, Jesus. Perform for us. Now we know Jesus doesn't do that, but don't, don't miss their unbelief. Because even though they're asking him for a sign, He's been giving them signs for three years leading up to this. But what does Jesus say to them in these verses here? He says, you know what? There's one final great sign, the greatest sign of all, and it is coming. And so in verse 19 that we just read, he speaks about a temple being destroyed and being raised three days later. And of course, we know that he's talking about the temple of his body that's going to come back to life after three days after being uh, killed on a Roman cross. He's talking about the resurrection. And so the one sign that all of human history hangs on is the empty tomb. This is our sign. This is it. It's the resurrection. If Jesus is raised from the dead, he's the son of God, period. That's it. And so modern skeptics have tried to disprove the resurrection of Jesus. I had to take an apologetics course uh, when I was in Bible college, and, and I loved studying the, pr the, the, the proof, the evidence for the resurrection. But there was an investigative uh, reporter, an investigative journalist for the Chicago Tribune named Lee Strobel. I don't know if any of you guys are familiar with him, but he tried, he set out to do an investigative, uh, you know, disproving of the resurrection, and he couldn't do it. And Strobel actually became a Christian once he saw all of the evidence. And so if you want to see his research, I'd encourage you to get the book, A Case for Christ. Uh, it's, it's a really fantastic book. You can see um, what, he, what he found there. So the resurrection of the Son of God happened, and that is the sign in the first century and today. Amen? It's it. It's the sign. Okay. One last thing I want to mention before we get to our, our two uh, personal walkaways is that scholars tell us that there's something much deeper that's going on here uh, with Jesus besides, you know, uh, confronting the corruption and all that. These scholars say that Jesus... What he's doing, he's actually getting ready to make the entire temple worship system obsolete. And he's going to do that by becoming the last final sacrifice for the sins of the world. And so what he's getting ready to do through his resurrection and the coming of the Holy Spirit that's recorded in the book of Acts is he's getting ready to make the entire world the temple of his presence and specifically, and I think it's an awesome thing, he's getting ready to make his followers into many mobile temples of the Holy Spirit, carrying his presence into every corner of human activity. And that's just mind-blowing that he's getting ready to do this. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? Because of his death and resurrection, you're the temple, I am the temple, who is in you whom you've received from 
God. So now you and I are literally temples of his presence, and we are houses of prayer. I am a house of prayer. You are a house of prayer. And, and we bring his presence into our world. And in our next text that we're going to look at in John chapter 3, Jesus is going to be talking to Nicodemus. And they're going to be talking about this reality of those that are born of the Spirit. I'm excited for that message. Okay, let me give us two quick walkaways for us to, to reflect on personally. I have two questions for us this morning as, as application for today. And the first is this. Am I confrontable? I want you to think about that. Am I confrontable? This is a real question that we need to face from time to time. If Jesus were to come walking into the temple courts of your heart, what would he find? What would he find? Would he find an attitude in you that is just hungry for money and you're willing to look religious to seal the deal? Would he, would he, would he look at us and, and find in, in the courts of our hearts a, a chaotic and distracted scene? Or would he find in our hearts an attitude that is not welcoming to the lost? What would he find there? And I mean, I, I don't want to, but I want to be okay with Jesus walking into the courts of my heart and kicking over my tables and spilling my coins if he needs to. Because I know that if he does that, it's for my good and his glory. Amen? Because what would happen if I were just to resist his voice and his conviction and his confrontation, and I were just to harden my heart, what would happen is that over time he would just let me go my own way, and then I would start to reap the results of my choices? And let's just say that would be very, very bad. <laughs> I never want to be in that place. So some scripture that helps me to keep my head and my heart straight around this is Hebrews chapter 12. And, and I'm just going to read a few of those verses for us, verses 5 and 6 and 11. It says, And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and don't lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves. That's what I was talking about just a few minutes ago. He disciplines the one he loves and he chastens or he rebukes everyone that he accepts as a son. And then it says, no discipline seems pleasant at the time. There may be times where it's just like, man, Jesus, wow, you're really going after that. It's not pleasant. It's painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. This is their lifestyle. They are confrontable. So are you confrontable this morning? I just want you to just examine your heart on that. My second walk away for us to consider this morning is, am I combustible? Am I combustible? And this really is a question about zeal. We saw Jesus' zeal today. So let me ask you, how is yours? How's your zeal doing? How's your zeal for God? 
Because it's God's desire and it's our desire at New Heights that we would be people of zeal, zealous for God, zealous for worship and prayer, zealous to love people tangibly, zealous to see injustice stop, zealous to see his name carried to the ends of the earth. We want to be people who are zealous for God. But my fear is that for, for some of us, we're bored with God. We're bored. We're bored with his word. We're bored with worship and prayer. We're, we're bored with serving. We're just bored with God and his kingdom. And, and I don't mean to shame anybody, but I, I have to ask, why is that? Why are you bored? And I get it. We all go through dry seasons spiritually. Like I know in my own life, I've, I've experienced like spiritual deserts. But here's the thing. When I'm in a space like that, I don't pitch my tent and go, well, I guess this is just as good as it gets. I hope heaven isn't boring. No, I want to walk in and I want to apply Romans chapter 12, verse 11, that says, never, not ever be lacking in zeal, Christians, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. And so it appears from this verse that our zeal is actually something that we are responsible for. You are responsible for your zeal for God. And I get it. The Holy Spirit works with us. But how, how, do, how do we receive from God and maintain our zeal? Well, when I was thinking about this, preparing for this talk here, I was thinking about a good fire. I mean, it's, it's, it's fire season, right? Like backyard, fire pit, all that stuff. I love it. I love a good fire. But what happens if you don't have enough wood for the fire? What happens if, if there's not enough oxygen? What happens if the wood is wet? Well, that fire just starts to fizzle and it goes out. And so, so I, I just have to look at, at the zeal of my heart like I look at a fire. And so if I'm smothering the zeal of my heart for God with busyness and distraction, those are the two biggies, guys. Busyness and distraction are killers of zeal. If I'm, if I'm smothering it because of that, or I'm filled up with so much other stuff that has ruined my appetite for God, I'm in trouble. And so I have to actually make a plan to spend time with God. I mean, I've got a pretty full schedule, I'm sure, like you do. I, but I, I love spontaneity. I love just Holy Spirit times where, where I'm just meeting with God as I'm in my car or I'm between meetings or whatever, or I'm walking in the woods. Uh, but, but I have to make a plan. And so I intentionally throw logs on the fire of my heart for God by, through my daily Bible reading plan. Or, or through listening to my Bible meditation app Lectio 365, I'm listening to it as I'm driving to work. Another way I throw logs on the fire of my zeal is I hang out with other people who have burning hearts. <laughs> like my community group. My community group on Thursday nights, we meet week after week and they're awesome. I love them. And I let their fire stoke my zeal. And so spiritual disciplines like these, they're not ways to earn favor with God. They're just simple ways that we turn towards him and we allow the Holy Spirit to blow on the coals of our lives. Amen. So do you have zeal? What do you love? What fires you up? What are you, what are you living for? What are you, what are you willing to die for? That's your zeal.
What will you sacrifice for? So here's what I want to do right now is I just want to close out my message and just pray for us around this, this whole idea of our zeal for God. Would you join me as, as I just pray for us? Let's just open our hearts to him. Lord Jesus, let it be that our zeal for you and your kingdom and your house and people and for the lost, let our zeal be greater than our zeal for our sports team. Some of us are pretty zealous about our sports team. May we have more zeal for you than that. Greater than our zeal for our boyfriend or our girlfriend or, or our, our favorite TV series or movie or video game. Lord, let our zeal for you be greater than all those things, greater than career success. May our zeal for you, God, consume us like it does Jesus. As we walk in your way, help us to have zeal for you. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. At this time, I'm going to call up our prayer teams. And so they're going to come around the room now. And I'm going to set up our ministry time. If you're a visitor here, we do this after the, after the teach every Sunday. It's a time for you to maybe sit and reflect on what we shared out of the word this morning or to pray with, you know, family or friends that you're with or to come get prayer from the elders or our, our prayer team around anything. We also have communion set up around the room. And as you take communion this morning, can I give you a specific reflection as you take communion? And it's just to think about how Jesus, in, in his body on the cross, taking your sins on the cross, he paid the penalty for your injustice and corruption. It says in Romans 3.23, all of us have sinned and fallen short of his glory. And so he's made that sacrifice for you. So as you take communion this morning, let zeal and gratitude rise up in your hearts as you remember him, amen? And so as we're getting ready to go there, we have a baptism that I'm really excited about. And so I'm gonna hand it off to Nathan and Randy and... and uh...